We've been looking at 1 Peter over the last few weeks and we've seen that Peter wrote this letter to believers in exile. We saw he wanted to teach and encourage them as how to live as believers in a society that was hostile to them. He reminded them that they have a living hope in Jesus, that persecution certainly existed, but it wasn't going to last. He instructed them to be holy as God is and to make sure that their faith was built on Jesus, the cornerstone. He explained how Christians are to live in relationship with each other and with those in authority. And in these next verses that we're going to be looking at today, we see that Peter is still teaching and encouraging them how to live. 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Peter, in the previous verses, has just talked about husbands and wives. Now he brings the discussion on how to act back to all believers. We're told to have unity of mind. Unfortunately, that's not you agreeing with me or me having to agree with you. It's having the mind of Christ. We're not to think our views are better than someone else's or vice versa. We're to search out and discover what Jesus is saying to us. It's that that truly unites us. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That doesn't mean that we're all the same, you know, carbon copies of each other. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. A few years ago, I was at a regional pastor's meeting and the guy who was speaking there had come from Sydney and he brought one of his youth leaders with him. And it was really funny because they were dressed virtually identically. And when the pastor got up to speak, he's like, we, don't, we really don't have a church uniform. It might look like it, but that's not the case. But it was quite amusing because the youth leader has obviously um, done his fashion sense on the, what the pastor was wearing because he looked virtually identical to the pastor in what he had on. But sometimes we can feel like that, that if we're being united, we've got to look and be exactly the same. We can't have disagreements. We can't have things that we think differently. But unity isn't being exactly the same. It's having the mind of Christ. It's doing what Christ has said. A good description someone gave is that Christians should be like a good choir. Each one sings with his own voice and some sing different parts. But they all sing to the same music and they sing in harmony with each other. If we want the mind of Christ, we need to make sure we're reading and understanding the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. That's where we find out what the mind of Christ is. We also need to listen to the Holy Spirit. He's been sent as a helper so we can understand what we read, what we hear. He's sent to help us. We can see the mind of Christ as we look in the scriptures as what he did and what he said. He said he came to do the Father's work. He came to serve, not be served. He said, told the disciples that whoever wanted to be great among them must be a servant, not lorded over others. He told his followers to make disciples, to go and make disciples. Peter says to have sympathy, brotherly love, 
a tender heart and a humble mind. All these involve loving and caring for others. Being sympathetic is the opposite of selfishness and self-centeredness. We're to be compassionate and have a mutual affection for each other. Humility is not thinking negatively about yourself. It's not putting yourself down. Sometimes it's sort of treated like that, that you basically, to be humble, you have to put yourself down. But that's not the case. Humility is not thinking about yourself at all. It's thinking about other people. And being humble means that you can offer help to someone without feeling like you're better than them because you can help them that you must be better than them. And it means that you can accept help without feeling that you're less than the person helping you. Humility is just thinking about others, not about ourselves. It's not surprising that Peter puts these attributes first because he gives an even harder task in the next verse, 1 Peter 3, 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. It's held that this verse concerns how we act towards unbelievers. The first verse, verse 8, talked about how we act towards believers. This one is talking how we act towards unbelievers. Remember that the people that Peter was writing to were under much persecution And it could have been very tempting for them to try and take revenge against their enemies. We're told here to not just ignore it, to not just try and put it behind us, to not just suck it up and get on with life, but to do something so out there that it is supernatural. We're to bless those who do evil to us. In doing this, we will also be blessed. Because we're following the example of Jesus, who even when he was being crucified, asked the Father to forgive those who were crucifying him. You've probably heard the saying, don't get mad, get even. That is, don't waste your energy on just being mad, angry about something. Get, try and see how you can get back at whoever's made you angry. And this verse, though, is the complete opposite of that saying. It's telling us rather than try and get even with someone, it's telling us to bless them. John Trapp, an English Bible commentator who wrote in the 1600s, said, to render railing for railing. Now, railing is an old-fashioned word for reviling. So, to render railing for railing is to think to wash off dirt with dirt. Peter follows on his instructions for holy living in the next verses by quoting from Psalm 34, 12 to 16, which emphasises what he's saying. He knows it's hard to do what he's said in those previous verses, so he wants to point out that this is what God has always said. This is what God has always told his people to do. It's not some new idea that Peter's dreamed up. It's what God has already said, and that's why it refers to Psalm 34. So in 1 Peter 3, verses 10 to 12. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
This passage points out some straightforward truths. If you want to have a good life, avoid evil and falsehood. If you're trying to follow and obey God, that's important. You need to avoid those things. I heard of a person having a sign in their house, on the wall in their house, and it said, Lord, put your arm around my shoulder and your hand over my mouth. At times that's what we do need God to do, (laughs) to put his hand over our mouth before we blurt out words that are wrong, unhelpful, hurtful. Peter tells us to guard our tongue, to speak the truth in what we say because we can do so much evil through the words that we speak. They may seem like just mere words. Oh, it wasn't that big a deal. It was only a few words. But as it says in the book of Proverbs, death and life are in the power of the tongue. We're told in verse 11 to turn away from evil and do good. Romans 12.21 says the same thing. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's not enough to just try to avoid evil. It's not enough just to say, well, I'm not doing anything evil. We're actually told to do good instead. We're actually told to do something. The book of Acts says about of Jesus that he went about doing good. If you have a bad habit to get rid of, it often doesn't work so well if you just try to stop it. You need to substitute a good habit instead. So instead of automatically doing the bad habit, you do the good thing instead. And the same is true if you're living wrongly. Stop it for sure. But also start to do what is right. Substitute right behaviour for wrong behaviour, right thoughts for wrong thoughts. I like this statement that I heard once. Spiritual development does not happen by merely pulling weeds. You must plant flowers. We're to be active in doing these things. Verse 11 instructs us to turn, to seek and to pursue. All these require deliberate actions on our part. To turn means to change direction. If you say you've turned away from evil, you can't keep on doing exactly what you've been doing before. You haven't turned away in that case. You're still going the same direction. If you're relying on a GPS to direct you to a certain location and you ignore it when it tells you to turn, it's not happy. It keeps trying to get you to turn. It's very persistent often in trying to get you to turn, to go to the right spot. In some ways, the Holy Spirit does that in our lives. He points out what is wrong and shows us the way we need to go. Now, you can ignore the GPS. You might end up getting to the right spot with ignoring it by just going a bit of a random route. But it's not wise to ignore the Holy Spirit's voice in your life. You need to listen to him and do what he says. Where to seek peace? That means to search for it, to actively look, to make it the focus. If you're searching for something precious, you hopefully look everywhere that you can think of. Even looking in places you think it can't possibly be. You turn over everything, you look under everything, you search again in the same spot that you just searched before, thinking, oh, maybe I just missed it. But you keep searching till you find it. Peace is precious and should be searched for. For the readers of Peter's letter, peace wasn't something they had. They were under persecution, under trials. It would be easy for them to think, it's not my fault that this is happening, that there's conflict and discord. It's not my fault. It's those people that are doing it to me. Yeah, I didn't cause it. It's their fault. 
Peter knows what they face. But he tells them that there is an obligation on them as followers of Jesus to seek peace. Just as Jesus brought peace and reconciliation with, with God to them. Just as he's done that to us. He brought peace. Even though it wasn't his fault that there was discord and disunity and everything. Jesus brought peace. Not only do we have to seek peace, we have to pursue it. Pursuing something comes at a cost. Think of athletes pursuing an Olympic dream. They must put an incredible effort in. It just seems so incredible when you see the training that they do and you see all the worthwhile things that they have to give up. They don't have to just give up bad things. They have to give up other worthwhile things to pursue this dream of winning an Olympic medal or in some cases just even just getting to the Olympics. They're single-minded and focused on what they want to achieve and they make sure nothing distracts them from it. It just seems to me incredible what they're willing to do and what they're willing to give up just to pursue this dream of going to the Olympics and maybe winning a medal or maybe making a final or just being there. For the believer, we're to seek and pursue this peace which is far more important than any earthly medal. Peter reminds them that God sees the righteous. That's those who are following him. And he hears their prayers. Peter consistently draws them back to the truth that God hasn't forgotten them. He hasn't overlooked them. He hasn't forgotten them. He cares for them despite what they are going through. And that evildoers will be judged by God. Evildoers will be seen and God will judge them at the right time. He will. What they are doing is not in darkness. It's not like neglected by God. He knows and he sees and he will act. 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter starts this part by questioning who can harm a believer if they are doing good. This seems a bit Odd, because he's writing to believers who were under persecution, who were suffering for their faith. Hearing this, they could be easily thinking, what are you on about? I'm doing good. I'm following Christ. I'm trying to live a righteous life. Yet here I am suffering for it. These people are harming me. I don't know what you're on about, Peter, because I'm get, you know, harm's being done to me, even though I'm living a righteous life, even though I'm doing what God has said. There's a couple of things in what Peter is trying to get across here. The first one is the obvious one, that you're more likely to be punished for doing the wrong thing than for doing the right thing. If you break the law, you're more likely to be punished, whereas if you keep the law, you shouldn't be. Now, it doesn't always work out like that, but that's how it should be. If you do the wrong thing, you should receive punishment. If you do the right thing, you shouldn't. And he's pointing that out to them, that 
basically, if they do the wrong thing, you're likely to have trouble, whereas if you do the right thing, you're less likely to have trouble. And he wants his readers to realise that they can't use the persecution that they're under as an excuse to act wrongly. He's already told them not to return evil for evil. And he's emphasising that in this statement here. It's more than just doing the right thing. He's talking about being zealous for good. That's having a strong desire, a passion for good. It's more than just sort of superficially doing what's right. It's having a real deep passion for what is good, for what is right. The next thing is he wants to draw their minds away from persecution and toward God. He wants them to realise that it's what God thinks and does that's the important bit. Not what other people are doing to them, but what God thinks and does. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Peter follows this thought on with the next verse. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. God sees and acts. In being zealous for good, in doing what is righteous, even though they might suffer for it, they are following the example of Jesus. That's what they're called to do. And that's what they're doing. They're following the example of Jesus. And as we do that also, we will be blessed. We have God with us. We have his presence in our life. And that in itself is a blessing that God is with us, that he directs us, that he keeps us, that he cares for us. Just as Peter tells his readers, we also are not to be afraid of those who seek to hurt us because we follow Christ. We're to make sure that Christ is central in our lives, that nothing or no one takes this place. Not fear, not revenge, nor the pursuit of comfort or the avoidance of danger. It must be Christ that is central in our lives. If we honour Christ as holy, no matter what we face, others will see that and wonder why. That is why Peter says, be ready to tell them when they are surprised that you have this hope. Remember to tell them what you are facing. Sorry, what you believe. When they see you, when you are facing all these things that are happening to you, and yet you still have this hope, you still can stand firm, people will be surprised and they will want to know why. Yeah, they will ask. And we're told to be ready to give a defence, to be able to tell people what we believe and why, which means we have to know that. We have to know what we believe and why we believe it so that we can tell others. And it's to be done, as Peter writes, with gentleness and respect, not in an in-your-face type of way, you know, you're going to hell, God's going to get you for this, just you wait, you know, you're going to get it. No, that's not the way we're meant to do it. I've heard people do that sort of thing and it's not helpful really. It might make the person feel better for a little bit but um, certainly not going to help and it's certainly not giving an accurate defence of what you believe. We need to tell people what we believe in a way that draws others to him so that they can see who God is. They can see why we can stand firm in the face of persecution and troubles and, and still have a hope even with what we're facing. So it's got to be done with gentleness and respect in a way that draws people to him. And if we continue to do what is right and good, even if people are mocking us, criticising us or causing harm to us in some way, this will be seen. 
Their actions will become obvious the more we stay firm in our faith. Their true motives will be exposed. It will become clear that what they accuse us of is false. Peter finishes by pointing out that no matter what you are facing, it is far better to obey God, to do his will, than to do the wrong thing, even if it means suffering. Then Peter brings us back to Jesus' sacrifice. Peter, continuing through this letter, comes back to Jesus' sacrifice, for what Jesus done for us, for how he suffered and died on the cross. Peter tells the people he's writing to that being willing to suffer is based in the example of Jesus because he was willing to suffer death on the cross for our sake. 1 Peter 3, 18-22 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. In this passage, Peter makes it clear that there is no longer any other sacrifice for sin, any other sacrifice that can please God. Jesus is a perfect example of one who suffered for doing good. And the sacrifice he made has completely paid the price that sin and death brought. Jesus, a righteous one, suffered for all of us who are unrighteous. And the purpose of it was to bring us back to God, to restore our broken and dead relationship with him. Verses 19 and 20 can seem very confusing. They're part of the book that has led some Monday writers to believe that this letter was written to Jewish believers because they would have had more knowledge and understanding of this part of the letter than Gentiles would have. With what Peter refers back to, talking about Noah and so on, it would have made a lot more sense to the Jewish believers rather than Gentiles. And for modern day readers, there's a lot of speculation about what it means, the who, the how, the where. There's a heap. If you look it up, there's just masses of different theories. It's possible that this is referring to demonic spirits, the fallen angels who followed the lead of Lucifer. From what I've read, this was the most common view held in early times, but there are plenty of other views, such as these were the spirits of the evil people that were destroyed by the flood in the time of Noah. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, what was clear to them, and in fact to all the world, was Jesus' victory, his triumph over the power of sin and death. In doing this, Jesus proclaimed a message of judgment, just as God had said would happen in the Garden of Eden. Peter then talks of baptism. He mentions the saving through the water of Noah and his family. The people of that time who refused to listen and obey God were swept away by the flood, while Noah and his family were saved by faith. The flood washed away wickedness and brought a fresh start. 
Peter likens this to baptism, where the act of baptism shows the old life is being washed away and the believer rises to a new life in Christ. But Peter is quick to point out there's not the actual washing of water that saves you. It is not that you need your outward body to be cleaned. It is the spiritual reality behind this. You can be baptised as many times as you like, but if you haven't repented of your sins, if you haven't accepted Jesus' offer of salvation through his death and resurrection and submitted your life to him, then it is meaningless. The act of baptism is meaningless. It would simply be an act of washing away physical dirt. It is, as the verse says, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a changed life through the completed work of Christ. For believers at the time, baptism was a very distinct act that showed their changed allegiance. It stood out against the society that they lived in and showed very clearly their commitment to Christ. It was something very obvious and something against the society at the time. When they were baptised, it made very clear what they were submitting their lives to, what they had now taken on. They were no longer going to live as the way that the society of the time did, as the way that was accepted and held to be the right way. They were chosen a different way and it made it very clear. They went against the societal norms and practices and this act of baptism, this public act of declaring their faith, of their new life, showed this. But the act itself was not the washings of the water but the inward change that came as they submitted their life to Christ. Peter ends the chapter by reminding them of the glory and position of Jesus. Again, he brings them back to Jesus. He continually tells his readers about Jesus, that what they're doing is to be, their lives is to be lived in honour of this one who did so much, who is so great. He refers to him in verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Again, Peter's reminding them, look, Jesus has triumphed. Jesus has overcome. Yes, you face persecution. Yes, you face difficulties and trials. But remember that Jesus has overcome all these things. And as you submit your life, as you live for him, as you live in his way, you too will overcome it. Peter continues to draw their minds back to the one who has saved them, the one they have committed their lives to. He wants them to remember that Jesus reigns in glory, that nothing can take away from that, not the persecution they suffer, not the trials they are going through, not the difficulty of living as a Christian in a world that is opposed to them. Nothing can take away from that because Jesus it reigns in glory. We need to keep this in our minds too. No matter what we face, Jesus has overcome sin and death. He has given us a new life. We're to live in righteousness following his example. What we face here, our earthly life, will pass away. It's pain, it's suffering, even it's temporary joys and successes. They will all pass away. What matters is that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, that we live lives that show the reality of him because he is real in our lives, because he is real to us. Not something that we just put on, but something that comes out of us because it is how we live. It is how, what we believe. 
And that shows out of us so that others can see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he has overcome sin and death. That the penalty for these things, for our sins, has been paid, Lord God, by his once complete sacrifice. And we thank you that he reigns in glory. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit that you send to guide us, Lord God. We thank you for your word that shows us the truth. And Father, I pray for each of us, for whatever each one of us is going through now, Lord. Whether it be persecution in some way or another, Lord God. Some sort of trial that we face, Lord, with what is around us, Lord God. That you will give us that strength. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to know that as we suffer, we follow the example of Jesus. And help us to be zealous for doing good, Lord God. To care for others. To not want to repay evil, rather, but rather bless. To do something that is so out there, Lord God. And we just thank you again that you are with us. You see, you act, Lord God. That nothing that happens is hidden from your gaze, Lord. That you see everything. And at the right time, you will deal with those who do the wrong thing. And Lord, we pray that you will sustain and keep us, Lord God. We thank you for the words of Peter as he writes this to believers at that time. That us, These words are so relevant, Lord, in our society as well. And we give you praise and honour and glory. Thank you, Lord God. Amen.